welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Griffin and she is the women's health expert. She's formerly an obstetrician and gynaecologist working in the NHS, Public Health England and the WHO. Uh, She's since developed and launched Stella, which is an app for the treatment of menopause symptoms uh, while Chief Medical Officer at Vera Health. She now works as an independent consultant, advising femtech startups and other companies wanting to enter and grow in the women's health space. Michelle, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And it's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Michelle? So I'm in super wintry, snowy Cambridge um in my <laughs> office actually so uh yeah still enjoying the snow here it's been good excellent excellent we had, we had a sprinkling a sprinkling over here uh, enough to make the garden look really nice and it stuck around so yeah enjoyable to wake up in the morning with sunlight and a bit of snow um it yeah, is nice yeah. isn't it but then you just get really annoyed and you're like yeah but i got stuff to do <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it gets it gets annoying when uh, when it affects the car and you can't you have to dig the car out. That's where it gets offensive. And we've got like a little road which is just not gritted either, so it is just an absolute pain. But before we digress into moaning about British weather, um, as I say, it is a, it is a pleasure to have you on. Calling myself out a little bit, we uh, we probably don't have fair representation of women on this podcast. Is something that I've definitely made more of a conscious effort to correct uh, this year and next. And so it's obviously good to have you on from that perspective, but also from a women's health perspective. Um, so much of what I've done recently and been involved with recently has been around actually difficult conversations that female founders have to have with VCs who are typically male, um, saying words that make them recoil and all these different stories that I've been party to and and other reasons that women's health might not be getting the funding that it deserves or all those different things, which I'm sure we can talk about. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely something that seems front of mind at the moment. It definitely seems something that's... I, I, dare say they're topical not that it's a fad or a trend but clearly something that is uh important and rising in popularity rightly and so glad to have you on today glad to shine a light on this looking forward to hearing what's going on in women's health and all the people you advise and what you're up to as an entrepreneur and obviously a previous clinician as well um in obs and gyne so yeah you are perfectly placed to be on here um as the spokesperson for women's health so Thank you for joining me. So let's get into it. Tell me a bit about your story. Obviously, Obzangaini, moving into tech, getting involved in entrepreneurship and helping other founders and and broadly talking about women's health. Um, Yeah, tell me me all about your story, Michelle. Yeah, sure. I think... um... The first point around my story is that unlike a lot of doctors, I didn't actually have a really clear goal or aim or path at all. Um, And I recognised that really early on in med school. Like I was looking around and there were the people who were like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do right down to what I'm doing in the next six months through to what I'm going to be doing in 20 years time. And it was definitely 
kind of can be quite isolating, I suppose, that you sit there and think, oh my God, that's just not me. That's just not me. But what can you do? If you don't know what you're going to do, you don't know what you're going to do. So I just went along and really just kind of went on the ride of it and had this whole, what I call the clinical phase of my life, which was like the first half of my career, and then moved into taking my clinical knowledge, experience, expertise with me, but moving it into more of a strategic med tech space, um, which is where it's then taken me now in running my own business. But going right back at the beginning, as you said, specialised in obstetrics and gynaecology, I was doing that, you know, whole kind of journey of NHS doctor. So specialize in, do all your exams, take some time out, do some lab bench research. Um, And I was like, right, yeah, you know, I'm ticking all the boxes that, you know, all medics will know about. Um, But I was just like, I'm not really like love loving it. Um, And the main thing for me is that I wasn't really seeing that this is what I wanted to do massively in the future. But I really loved women's health. I loved the science of women's health. And I loved problem solving. And that's the thing that really has stuck with me and is my real area that I love to work in. I love to solve problems. I love anything like a crazy area or equally a blank sheet of paper that says, look, what are we going to do now? Um, But, you know, in my first, you know, sort of 10 years of my career, like a lot of other doctors, we were just learning our art and our science there. And we were very much like on call, seeing patients, dealing with a lot of different problems. And usually difficult problems, whether they were that it was a real emergency situation, you were the only one in the team who was able, who was there doing something, whether it was just really emotionally difficult because of the situation. Um, There was lots of times where you had to make a lot of decisions, you had to solve a lot of problems, you had to prioritise a lot of issues. And I learned an awful lot and really cut my teeth in it. And I also understood healthcare and loved healthcare. But the, it was growing more and more that like what I was doing as a doctor in Obs and Gynae, whether it was the clinical end of things, being on delivery unit, running, you know, gynae oncology theatres, looking like being part of the multidisciplinary team or working out on the lab bench. I just wasn't really getting the joy that I wanted. And I, mainly because I wasn't having the creativity and really being able to solve problems. Um, but I thought, God, you know, I really love women's health. I really love working with people and I loved interacting with people. But I thought, okay, I'm going to jump at a chance and move over to Public Health England. And that was as one of the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows. And I got seconded there. And that was really like the beginning of the end of my clinical career and the beginning of like, wow, there's like this whole new area in healthcare, which wasn't new at all. It was just unbeknownst to me. And I was like, okay, let's just get going. And what was great is Public Health England, or at least the area I was in, was predominantly full of public health doctors rather than any other specialist doctors. So they were like, wow. We've never really seen like a hospital doctor before. We've never really dealt, you know, worked with doctors who are literally seeing patients. And it was just amazing to see where they were coming from. And I went from a place where I'm on a delivery unit looking after 
15 women having to make literally split second decisions like we're going to take her to theatre no we're not this one's now become prioritized we're taking this one to theatre prep this one we're doing this to like you can't look at an individual anymore Michelle we're looking at populations and we're looking at timelines around five to ten years and even five is a bit short and I was like wow and I love that. I love the change in mindset and that opportunity to learn something completely new again, thinking, I haven't really done that since med school. I love that. And there's so much about your story that's relatable there. And before we go any further into obviously like the med tech stuff, we, we've, we've taken a similar path, you know, the FMLM fellowship. Um, uh, you, you had more of a dalliance in public health that I did. I actually sat the exams to get involved in public health and then just decided not to actually go through with it because <laughs> I, I went to the accelerator and did other stuff. Um, so I had that same yearning to, to I get to, I guess, understand the back end of healthcare a bit more and, and that population level stuff. Um, and, and just to mention, like, it's just so relatable that you were, you were doing the box ticking, doing everything you were meant to do and still not getting the joy. I think that's something that's so relatable, not only to me, but probably to, well, I know for a fact, lots of people listening that that are in that career currently and, and looking for something different. And it's frustrating, isn't it, when when you can't get the joy that you want, like you want to feel the joy from it, and that is a frustration. And I think broadly that's, that is a challenge for the for workforce planning going forwards. And I, I worked at HEE for my FMLM fellowship. And so I learned a little bit about workforce planning and that kind of thing. And, you know, how to look after the doctors or, or not um, while, while you're there and the things you can do, the things you can't and how difficult it is actually to workforce plan. And, for, you know, for the, the giving people the flexibility and, and finding a way to actually create better conditions for those staff is well how difficult it is is by the by it's essential at this point i i, I just don't know yeah. if the workforce crisis is or the workforce situation is sustainable because it is a crisis you know i've been to giant recently i've been to a few events recently our, our tomex thing at google like the pe the, the amount of people that, that are just looking for something different and you don't know how long that the sort of the train is going to keep going to med school like how, how how long is it until that information seeps down of actually like oh, yeah. i've got straight a's i'm captain of every sports team should i really be going to medical school is that where my ceiling is highest and is that where i'm going to get the joy that i want you know it, it, it's it's interesting that and i think your move into health tech obviously then is is inspirational to many in terms of how you've managed to do that um i don't know if you've got any reflections on that workforce thing or whether you want to crack on with your story but um yeah, you, you tell me. Definitely. Like, yeah, my feeling um, kind of just going off a little bit and thinking about workforce planning, like, it's it's not sustainable. Like, we're about to hit, I predict, the biggest crash in workforce ever. And it won't just be those at the front line. It will, you can see it stacking all the way back. Like, as you say, like the train heading to medical school, I'm sure, is just on its route to massively reduce um, and and not only will we not have the staff right now, we also haven't got any of the backup staff or the future staff coming down the line. Um, and, you know, I can hear like the government talking about, well, Labour was talking about, oh, OK, well, this is what we do X, Y, Z. Um, and the cavalry's coming. And I thought, you know, like, 
there's so much to unpack in that. Um, but mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, the recovery is not going to come with just increasing the wages. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I'll happily just say, look, I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure I'm not alone with the things that I'm about to say is that the wages were never the number one problem. And I don't think they ever really will be. Um, mm-hmm. I think everybody who went into medicine that I know of did it because that's what they wanted to do. You know, and no one really had a clue how much money you were going to earn or how much money you could earn. Money never came up, really. It wasn't that. It was like, you know, going back to what I said, I didn't have a plan. No one that I knew of at med school and no one who I've ever taught or been with went, you know what, I've got a plan because I know that when I get to this type of doctor or this level, this is how much I'm going to earn. Then when you speak to all of your, like, you know, at uni, who's doing economics, who's doing English, history, anything else. And they're like, I'm going to this job and I'm going to do this. And that's what my starting salary is. And that's what my sign on bonus is. And I'm not making any comments on that. I'm not criticizing it at all. Maybe doctors should be a little bit more knowledgeable. It probably mean that they would be better at running businesses. (laughs) But generally, they're like, that's not what they're motivated by. And so a change in what they earn is it going to actually cut it? Um, I think for me, like as you, like as I said, and you picked up the lack of joy, the lack of like what it's it's as simple as what am I doing this for? You know. So for me, I loved being with people. I loved solving problems, and I absolutely loved surgery. Like that was my big specialist area was gynae surgery, and when I couldn't do those three things together on a regular basis, that really affected how much joy I was getting from it. Um, And I was just like, this isn't a job I basically want to do. And like many people I'm sure you've had on your podcast, I've heard and others will talk about the fact of like, they then get this real pull because vocationally you think you've done so much and you feel like there's a duty and a responsibility and you have to do this. And you have this massive like inner tangle with yourself. Like, is this what I need to do anymore? Do I need to continue to be a doctor? Maybe there's also like a family friend feel to it as well. Like you should continue. But, you know, going back to workforce, they've got to think about what are doctors wanting to do? And that applies to anyone. It's not just doctors, but to nurses, to everybody going into healthcare. What is it that their job is? And that wages and pizza and all of these kind of things is not going to do it. And it's just really inadequate patches over a fundamental problem. And just as an example, like I'd heard that, you know, there is discussions about doctors should be looking to think about only doing operations nine to five, Monday to Friday. And I totally understand that that's not feasible. It's not sustainable as a healthcare system to put that forward. And I thought the thing is, is that you're going to a burnt out doctor that is so unhappy, is so sad about the whole situation of what they do, what it has an effect on their family and their friends, what's had an effect on their life. And what's the whole healthcare system look like? And even then, the person who comes to tell you, well, you need to work this Saturday to do a catch-up list or whatever, doesn't even do it in a polite way. It's not even like, I know this is going to be really rubbish, but is there any way? It's just an expectation. 
an expectation when you're already so far from what you're contractually supposed to be doing and what you envisaged you were doing. And so I'm just saying that you've got to get back to the fact is, is that you've got to almost strip everything back and start from saying, this is what we think a doctor would look like. And we're going to staff it properly. So we, our work Saturday and Sundays, our work nights, we did all of that. This is not new. We've always done this and we always will do it. But just don't expect me to finish a week of nights on a delivery unit. Get home at midday on Monday and be back operating on elective lists at Tuesday at seven in the morning and then wonder why I might be a bit annoyed. That's like just it- basics. <laughs> It is. And it's important, this, in, in, because for health tech, this is important, right? Because I think innovators need to understand the environment in which new technologies are going in, right? They need to understand that environment. And one of the stakeholders, for want of a less jargony word, one of the, one of the groups of people that the innovators care a lot about is clinicians be that doctors specifically in your case nurses ot's physios any clinician right clinicians are an important stakeholder when it comes to innovating to get them on side and to get them to either use or advocate for or in other countries actually buy uh new innovations it's so important right now as we sit here in 2022 to understand what that environment looks like for clinicians in the UK, in the UK NHS. And the the picture that you have just painted is such a real, viscerally real to me, picture of what it's actually like. And so for, for, for innovators to understand that, I think is so important when you're considering and when you put in pitch decks Oh, you know, clinicians are going to care about this because it improves the lives of patients. It's like, yes, they they will care about it because it improves the lives of patients if that's what you're going for. They're going to like it more if it's a bit less work for them to do and they don't have to learn it and they don't have to spend time learning it and other, someone else is actually going to use it rather than them and it's going to take just one one person off their list or whatever it is. And, and yes, you can get momentum then that way with clinicians, um, but expecting them to do something more, even if it's going to eventually mean they do less in the long run, it's often that first bit. It's often, well, you just have to do this. You just have to learn that. You just have to get involved in this way. And then it becomes way easier. And that kind of activation energy for any chemists, like that's that's what there isn't capacity for because you're already at 110%. And that's where clinicians can get very frustrated with health tech, I find, where people have made assumptions about their day, their time, what they actually do. And so I think it's so important that we that we have just discussed that and, and that you've painted that picture. Um, but we are obviously here to talk about the impact that, that you're having and that you're making. And so whilst that is a very real um, representation of what's going on, that there's obviously impact to be made when you can turn your skills in OBS and Gynae to then women's health more broadly and technology and sort of that one-to-many model that you're doing now with your advising and your entrepreneurship and all the rest of it. So fill us in on the rest of the story um, and tell us how you get to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think just kind of, kind of all it, you know, marries back up just to pick up a big area of what I work in now so I'm advising companies who are working in women's healthcare women's health tech 
And as you say, clinicians are a big stakeholder there. And a big part of my job is being a translator. So it's taking people with a great idea and with all these amazing experience that they've got in their women's health tech company. And they've got funding and they've got input from their board and everything's great. And then, as you say, they've written on a deck. Clinicians are going to love this because, you know, we're going to shorten diagnosis of endometriosis from the average of five years down to one year. And clinicians are going to love it. Yeah, they have to do this extra, but they'll love it. And you're like, whoa, let me just stop you there. Let me just explain how endometriosis is diagnosed at the moment. Let me talk you through a typical patient journey. Let me explain what's in the mind of a GP when they see that woman and what that woman is thinking when she has turned up for her fifth appointment for pain, let's say, and she's on the rapid access clinic list at the GP surgery, likely being seen by GP Reg, and they don't specialise in women's health. And all this, let me just take you through that journey. And so a lot of it is doing translation on that side. And they're like, oh, 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 I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I hadn't thought about that. And that's great. And I love that. And I'm not trying to score points there. I'm just saying, look, I love your idea. And you've got a lot of elements that I'm not competing with you. I want to help you get this out here. I love this. But you need to make these tweaks and you need to make these amendments. And I'm here to help you do that. And on the other side is I'm here to translate over in the clinical world. So typically in the NHS, but I will work across lots of markets. And so when the clinicians are like, no, I haven't got time for that. I'm not interested in that, Michelle. I'm like, look, come on. I know what you're doing and I know how you do that process and I know where it goes wrong and I know what you get frustrated by. So how about if this, if I just had a magic wand and this could happen and they'd be like, yeah, but I'm worried about it would need to be clear. I'd need a clinical trial, Michelle. I'd need to see the evidence or I need a regulation. I'm like, yeah, no, I know all of that. But we kind of ticked all those boxes and here we are. It's there. It's in your drop down box. Would you then prescribe it? Why would you not prescribe it? This is what it could do. Or this could be your add on to your electronic health record you've got. Oh, well, it would have to integrate the API. And I was like, I know that because I use that system. But whereas clinicians can sometimes sit apart and say, look, it's just too difficult. I'm not that interested. I can translate and go, you know what? I know where you get caught out and I can actually, you know, talk you through that. And so what I find is we get much more successful conversations. And, you know, I totally get that point about the activation energy. But like this, basically, through this translation, I can get enough activation energy to really get it up and going. And that's very much what I took my clinical expertise from my clinical days and really moulded that together with this second phase of my life as I moved into Public Health England, opened my eyes to massive stakeholders, to no money, loads of stakeholders, and massive need to get things done. And I thought, God, I've got to learn a better way to do this. The whole adage of NHS, I do this for patient safety, this patient needs it, you know, running up to your radiology consultant and pleading for that MRI. It doesn't sit like that when you're not at the front line so much. And you have to be clever, you have to be savvy, and you have to really understand how system works, how systems work, and how things get done, and how you can pull on levers 
to do that. And that's where I really kind of learned that side of the trade. And I then moved into healthcare strategy consulting, and I was doing it with C-suites of secondary care hospitals um, and various others. And I was really kind of honing in on, look, this is what I do is I translate between lots of different groups of people, but I can also see strategically what the picture looks like and how we're going to make things happen. And that's the thing, like not to just leave it with the here's an idea, but actually this is what you're going to do and this is how it's going to help. And then, you know, I had a little dabble into research strategy um, and I worked at Cancer Research UK. And that was really interesting because then they're really on timelines of like 20, 25 years. You know, what do we invest in now that will deliver something so far in advance? And how do we even know what we should be doing? What will be the problems in 25 years? And yeah, there's data out there. But how do we know the decision that we're making is the right one? And how do we go about that? And that was fascinating. And this whole idea around the need to evaluate and really understand around impact assessment. And so I could feel all these strings coming together. And yet I still didn't feel like I'd quite hit my area. And the one bit that I really was missing was anything in technology. And as I often will say, you know, around me outside of my job, the tech was massive you know we all you know we all have our iPhones or whatever our gadgets are the apps are coming this that and everything to make our lives better but in healthcare it wasn't really having we weren't in the boom you know a few years back whereas now we are and I thought you know this is this is about to take off you know I could see it happening in the US but in the UK I could see there was more what I mean by takeoff is like generally the everybody in the NHS was thinking about it and I thought like I don't really understand it though like I don't come from a tech background and this is a real hole in my career so I was like you know what I'm just going to throw myself into it and so I just <laughs> like most things I was like no I don't have a plan no of course I don't have a plan and I'd love to <laughs> sit here and say yeah I had this plan and I and even now and for the last 20 years I'd listened to a you know, stories of people and you go for dinners and people would say, I had this plan, I had it all worked out, this is where I was going. And I'm like, my God, am I just the only one who didn't have a plan? So I do lies, feel very Michelle. strongly. It's lies. It's, it's lies. lies, isn't it? I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, I to, be, I'd like to believe it's lies. I think some people are actually that organised. <laughs> Certainly not me. <laughs> but, you know, I don't regret anything I've done. I'm super pleased with everything I've done. And, you know, the one thing I really live by, and we're kind of going off on a tangent now, but the one thing I really live by is that I don't have a plan. And that's just me. And I knew I'd never would yeah. have a plan. And I've accepted that now. But what I will do is that I will do it until I am happy. And then I move on. And when I'm not happy, mm. I have the strength and the experience to move on. Um, and I think, you know, it takes everybody a different, you know, amount of time in life to probably get to that point. Um, and that's my biggest thing that when people are looking for a change, I just think, you know, ask yourself if you're happy. And if you're not, then it's time to move on. And maybe that's not this week, this month, this year, but it's somewhere that you should be heading. Um, so then I was like, look, I need to get into med tech. What am I going to do? And so I thought I'll just send my CV to some tech companies, see, see what happens. And, and unsurprisingly, through my lack of planning, everyone went, mm, you've not actually applied for a job 
Dr. Griffin, is there a specific job you'd like to do? And I was like, no, I just kind of want to come and do stuff in med tech. And so they were like, okay, that sounds good. And I was like, you know, I know a lot about medicine and I know a lot about healthcare systems. And I've worked in all these different places. So understand how things work locally and regionally and nationally and international. By that time, I'd worked quite at a senior level in Public Health England and then at WHO. And I was like, I know a lot about data. Um, I'm sure I'm sure there'd be something useful here. So I just threw myself in to a company that is predominantly engineers who were literally at like the front line of building hardware. And then they were going through a massive change because everything was like, we're moving away from hardware, we're moving into software. So it was really interesting to see what how they went about doing that. But they then basically worked for massive pharma and med tech companies as the engineer consultancy. Um, and I learned so much. I learned all around the kind of things that you have to know, like regulation, for example, but also the understanding of how ideas come about and how things go through massive pharma companies and how there's massive rearrangement of strategic priorities and everything's got to be in flux all the time. And, you know, money will come in and money will go out. And, you know, what's really going to make an impact for that business and what is that business interested in doing? And obviously, I learned more about software and I learned more about a lot of startups and what they were doing. And I was like, wow, I love this startup place. But I really miss my women's health. I'd worked across all of medicine and I finished my kind of swan song there was being the clinical lead on the ventilator challenge. And I was like, okay, we're in the middle of, well, the very beginnings of COVID. The government needs to make a, you know, absolute ton of ventilators. And we were heading up the stream that was looking at build a ventilator with no components of a normal ventilator, but it needs to work exactly like a ventilator. I was like, well, that sounds like a kind of Michelle shaped problem. I love that. (laughs) And then, you know, and that was a great experience because it was really working very closely with the government, very closely with how UK government deals with situations like this, who they get involved, how all those pieces of the puzzle come together. And once again, like that was my big thing in the translator. I'm not an intensivist. I didn't know my ins and outs of a ventilator. Neither am I an engineer. But what I am is a person who's worked in lots of different areas with a scientific foundation, a clinical experience, and have worked at government level multiple times throughout multiple projects and understand the overall healthcare system and how to work globally when necessary. And I was like, I just need to put all these pieces of the puzzle together. And I just need to translate between what the engineers need to know from the clinicians that are sitting in the ITUs that are feeding in data, who they were being fed data by, let's say, Italy intensive, Italian intensivists. And we need to put all these pieces of the puzzle together. And man, it was incredibly hard it was the best 60 days of my life probably I had the best time but it was horrendous um, because it was just so intense and there was so much at stake but I learned so much and I thought you know what this really confirmed that I like fast pace um, and I like to make decisions but I also need to have a big impact at the end And I thought, you know, the place to go with this is startups. So I moved to Vera Health as chief medical officer there. 
And they were just really starting. They just got their funding. They wanted to build a product for menopause support. And I was like, let's get going. Let's get cracking. And a year later, we launched Store Stella. And that, you know, is going from strength to strength. And all of that kind of has given me where I am now of saying, look, women's health is what I really love. That's where I really want to stay. But I really like to solve problems and big, meaty problems. And I want people to be successful and I want it to make a difference. And as corny and cliched as it sounds, like I really need to see in my lifetime that women's health moves on from what I saw as a gynecologist. And so look, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to work with any and all companies that want to be doing something in women's healthcare, women's health tech, and I'm going to help them succeed just as I have done with all the projects that I've worked on in the past. There's, so there's, a, there's three things actually that I want to just pick up on from what you've just said. Uh, and I think it's broadly because we have a very similar framework, you and I, um, in that I really respect the search for knowledge, the, the search for knowledge and understanding, I guess, in your journey. And I get the, the, the bravery to throw yourself into things as well in order to do that. So often when I was on that transition myself, I was asking, yeah, but how did you actually do that? How did you actually learn that stuff? How did you actually go to a place where you could learn that? Like, what, what was the interview like? What, how, how did you? So I always ask those questions. And I think you're similar in that regard that you, you want you want the knowledge and understanding and you're willing to go to other places to learn it rather than either book learning or just expecting it to you know be learned you're willing to do the work there which i really respect to amass the knowledge that you have and i think that's important in a translator role that you talked about previously yeah. in order to be a translator in order to sit in the middle of different things and give that advice i think that's incredibly important which brings me on to my second point actually the importance of doing that work to be a good advisor. Plenty of people will be an advisor. I'm a med tech advisor. I'm a health tech advisor. I'm a digital health advisor. Heck, I'm a digital health expert. I'm a health tech expert. Like, it happens a lot. And actually, being looking at things through one lens, I don't think gives you the utility. Well, it doesn't give the utility of many lenses. And I think that's what's important about your journey there is that you're a translator because of your search for knowledge and understanding you're a translator in between so many different things of all that to government and policy right down to how to do a c-section like yeah you've got all of that knowledge and, and, and understanding which becomes incredibly important to be a good advisor and i think my other bit of actionable advice here for people listening that are building startups is the people that are going to come to you and offer you their advice for five percent equity or what whatever it is and then a board fee and whatever like really interrogate that because mm. whilst people can have many letters after their name they might not have the utility in what they actually say and what they can actually do and i think someone like yourself michelle is really telling that story well of like the, the knowledge and understanding to actually put many things together in order to give good advice and good challenge and good business challenge and good product challenge and good strategy challenge. I think that's really important in an advisor. And the other thing I just wanted to pick up on just because it's philosophically where we're aligned as well is that optionality is incredibly important for happiness because it's a moving target. I think that that is in, incredibly aligned to how I see the world as well of like someone asked me the other day, like, oh, what happens if you exit? What happens if you and I win the lottery? All, all these different things. It's just like, well, I don't know until I get there. And when I get there, I'll have a certain yeah. feeling about it and I'll do some stuff. Like I don't need... 
I don't need the plan beyond a certain point because if I'm happy where I'm at, I'm just going to focus on making sure I'm making those small moves to keep chasing what I think happiness or contentment is. And optionality gives me that. Where I'm too fixed in what I can do or what I can move into or things that I can do. And unfortunately, you know, entrepreneurship is the ultimate freedom from that perspective within reason. Um, but at least you can have a go in, in many different things in the hopeless search for happiness <laughs> or chasing an end goal that doesn't exist. But I think I think that's great. I think the diversification of your knowledge and skills is important there. And, and yeah, wanted to say that, that I pulled out in your story. I thought that was great. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. And I think, you know, you definitely got a good idea of, you know, how I work and what I'm interested in. I think there's some things like with all of us, there's things that stick in our mind that we've seen or been told or read or whatever. And I remember one consultant in a little DGH that I worked in said to me, and, you know, going back from a place that, you know, I came straight out of uni, I got the whole, you know, very typical almost perfect CV, no doubt, you know, from uni to med school. Uh, sorry, it's it just doing your like, beginning jobs. All the papers, exactly. Like, you need a first source of paper. Oh, okay then. Off I go get my first source of paper. You need to get your MRCOG. Oh, okay. It would look really good if you, mm. yeah, don't you worry, I'm getting it. Actually, two things. One person once said to me, Michelle, when are you going to stop chasing baubles for your tree? And I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. a good point. I do just go and pick up things. But, you know, uh, what I took from that is, yes, I do go and pick up things, but I do it for the right reasons. Maybe not so much in my early career, but now I definitely do because, like, I'm interested in that and I want to be at a level that I see. Now, sometimes that level is reading an article and sometimes that level is getting, let's say, a degree in it. And I choose then what I want to do and the level I want to be at. But I don't think a bauble is something wrong per se. It's just why you're going after it. But someone said to me, you know, you are on a piece of paper just that you're doing so well. But what you've got to do is change your mindset. Because in Obs and Gynae and probably everything in medicine, and then this all just expands to healthcare and probably life, to be honest, is... You need to get comfortable about being uncomfortable and you need to be fully submerged in how uncomfortable whatever that situation may be. And you just need to say, look, I can run with that. And that really, I would say that was like a significant change in my mindset that when, you know, I don't, I can't have full control over everything and nor can the businesses that I'm working with and nor can we predict how it's going to happen in the same way as what you're going to do if you exit, win the national lottery and all of that. We're (laughs) never going to know the answers to all of this. But what we are going to do is just be comfortable with the uncertainty that we're living with right now on a personal, professional, whatever note. And I kind of took that to the next step and went, you know what? I'm not just going to be comfortable here. I'm actually going to see the opportunity. So when you're a business, let's say you're early stage startup and you're like, this is just what we want to do. This is the essence of what we want to do. I'm like, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, then don't be wedded to this product. You need to change this a little bit. You need to tweak this. You need to completely change your business model of how that works because this will work better for X, Y, Z reasons. And we're not sure, but we're going to go out and test because it's only me and you in the room right now. And as much as we do have experience and expertise and advice and strategy and all of that, we're not one million women. And I will never be that. And so we need to go and test um, and we need to find out what's going on. 
But we can go in with an informed, educated, best version as much as we can so that our building blocks are good. But to see the unknown, to see the fact that this is uncertain, to see the fact that you're going to have to change it, not only am I comfortable with that, I see it as a massive opportunity because it's the opportunity to make it right. And I know that right does exist somewhere for these products, for women's healthcare. I know that the right fit and this market and everything is existing. I'm just working my way through helping companies and learning how do we get there. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so relatable. Um, I want to talk about women's health now because we've been talking for 40 minutes and managed not to actually cover it properly. But... <laughs> Yeah, but I'd like to I'd like to know what's going on in the women's health world and I'd like to learn that from you. Obviously, I am in health tech. I do have an understanding. I do have a view. Um, but I'm not in it as much as you are and I'd like to know what you perceive is happening in women's health right now. That even that introduction that I gave about it feeling more on the radar now is that topical is is that relevant sorry uh, is that real is that real from your perspective is that leading to anything actually useful going on it's all well and good talking but is there any action um you tell me what's what's going on in women's health what's your perception of of the world of women's health right now mm, i think it's a really good point i think it is what's real and relevant is the intention the intention is there like I haven't seen before over right. the last few years. That intention's there and it's building. You know, when we look at the kind of VC angel investment landscape, they're all shouting and saying, look, this is a growth area. Um, and what follows through with that is an intention which should by and large lead to more funding. We are starting to see more funding in this space. And so from a women's health tech, startup, investment, innovation, point of view, yes, there's definitely a growth area. And the intention is there. Is that having an impact? No, I don't think so. And I don't think I'm alone in seeing that. But, and we've talked a lot about this, you know, there are time lags. And, you know, I recognise that not everything's going to shift overnight. My concern comes, though, is twofold. One, if we don't get, if we don't see a significant change in some part of what can be deemed as the women's healthcare space, and I mean a positive change, a positive impact, soon, I worry that this intention starts to lose its foundation. It loses its weightiness, and it becomes like, does this now mean that it's a trend and it's not going to come to anything and everyone just moves on their intentions onto the next big thing? So I am desperate for anyone to succeed to any extent in this space, but a tangible success that people, other people can hold up and say, when X, Y, Z did this, this is what happened. Um, and then the second thing which relates to that is my concern over the current space is that good intentions are there, but this push and drive and need to see and measure outcomes is not following through. 
So it's all on the ideas end of it. And it's not saying, but this is the effect I want to see. So I speak to lots of companies, like I'm talking many every single day, day in, day out, weeks, you know, going, having phone calls with people, advising actual clients, speaking to people on LinkedIn. I'm in many, many women's health tech groups and we're getting chats all the time. And the ideas are not, you know, there's no lack of ideas. But what I say is, what's this going to do? What is a woman going to see? What's the difference going to be? Well, and that's a little bit more sketchy. And I'm not saying you need to have everything worked out. But, you know, if I come at this, and as I say to my clients, you need to start with that. Don't start with the pain point or your own personal journey of what happened to you when you had to face this what or, you know, manage this condition or whatever. Start with what that woman who you don't know in the street or that gynecologist or that A&E doctor or whoever it be in the healthcare system needs. And what it's not the pain points, but it's the outcome. Everyone's saying, these are the pain points and this is how we're addressing it. But I'm like, do I build a product for the pain points? I don't know. Yeah, you need to be conscious of them, but I would build a product for an outcome I want to see, not for the pain points. It just seems the wrong way around to me. And I think if you start with the outcome you want to see and the outcome you're going to measure and you look at it like a clinical trial, you say, look, this is what my hypothesis is. And I suspect that this will happen and I want to see this happen. And then I will build backwards and I will build whatever product I need to build because my business is focusing on getting that outcome. My business is not focused on building this product. And people are too wedded to their, especially in women's health, their personal journey, which I completely understand is a massive motivator and it's pushed people into this space for, you know, for good. And I'm really pleased about it. But one of the biggest things I say is like, stop thinking about this for you and start thinking about your business. What's your business going to do? That's not what you're going to do. What's your business going to do? And what outcome is your business going to achieve for women ultimately? And how are you going to measure that? That's very aligned to purpose, isn't it then? And as you say, there's less of uh, less of a wedding to any given product or approach or way of doing things. You're you're building the whole company around a certain purpose and vision, which is really interesting. When you talk about outcomes, there, what out? Give me some outcomes. What outcomes would you like to see? What do you what comp, What outcomes do you want companies built around? What are some examples there? I'm a big picture kind of person. And so I'd love to say, look, these massive outcomes. But in reality, I think when it comes down to a business, what you need to do is, is you know, like we say, and we hear a lot, and I think it's it's right to say, look, you need to niche and then grow. So the kind of outcomes that I would be saying is not to say that, you know, you're going to knock out the diagnostic journey for this, or you're going to be able to continually screen for something that we don't even look for at the moment. <laughs> I would just be like, you know, I'd say the outcome, and I wouldn't necessarily say this is the vision for your, your company, but this kind of what are you doing? You're, what you're doing is you're going to say, let's just say, I'm going to take cervical screening, which is a well-established screening pathway accepted in the UK and many other countries, accepted 
by and large by women. They may not choose to do it, but they recognise it's there and they go and they have a smear done. And typically that's done at a GP setting. And I'm going to take that and I'm going to say, look, I'm going to do exactly the same, but I'm going to do it at home in a way that gets hold of these cells so they can still be analysed in exactly the same downward pathway, but I'm going to get hold of them in an easier way, let's just say. Um, And so I need to do it to like increase the uptake of screening for cervical screening, let's just say. And, And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Because what we know is that the uptake of cervical screening is really poor and is on the decline again. And a lot of it is because people are scared, fearful, don't want to go to the GP, don't have time to go to the GP to get their smear. And that's like a whole other area to unpack what's going on there. But you say, look, I'm going to move that and I'm going to take that. And the outcome will be is that more people get their um, smear taken or they get their screening done, however you're going to go about it. And so then you say, look, why aren't people not getting their smear done? And where have people happily done things? Where have things worked really well? So I need to take that people don't want to do this for this reason, but people have overcome similar reasons by doing it like this. Right, now I need to build a product or a service that brings those two bits together and really put those two pieces together. Did I start by saying, look, I've got this amazing new kit that you can you know, we on a stick can collect cervical cells and we can screen on that and that's my technology and da-da-da-da-da. I'm not saying it's not possible, but what I'm saying is is that people focus too much on the product and not the outcome. And it's the outcome that's going to be effective and make you successful. So you need to, the product you can change. You can change and you can do whatever you need to do. That's product development. But people are so wedded to the start of the process rather than what you're trying to achieve. And I just think, you know, that's what you want to shift your mindset to. Yeah, it's really interesting for any any company, to be honest, to be more aligned to the purpose rather than the product. It's funny because you I run a business and you get you do get wed to the way that you are doing it. And then when the requirement comes to pivot that, you can you can take a massive hit there um with how you feel because you can feel it can almost feel like failure well, it does it, it can it absolutely does feel like failure when that just hasn't worked if if reframed though that's quite interesting that you wouldn't perceive it so much as failure you wouldn't perhaps assign so much of your uh personal worth to that failure if you're elevating the purpose above it because it's just one of the things that you tried on the way and i think that's a very subtle thing to do even just in your mind to just put the purpose above the product um but i think as a founder that that hugely transformational for those for for those people that have to do that when you talked about um you talked about something needing to happen to stop this from becoming a fad and to sort of embed this as a embed women's health as a essentially a credible sector right that has opportunity that has financial return that has everything that the the sort of reputation it needs to embed what are you talking about there in terms of an event you talking about big exits are you talking about i don't know certain things in media are you so what is it that you think is going to be what are those events that embed that sector 
I can imagine big exits would do it right in, in at least in part that's where my mind yeah went. yeah I agree I don't think that there's any and, and this is good news there's no one thing that I could name and say look this will this will cement it and this mm. will be great and this is what the one thing that we need and if we don't get this then we're all screwed I don't see it like that at all I think even if you did I wouldn't say things. say it out loud just in case it doesn't happen <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'd be like, yeah. So we need this thing that's a total impossibility. I'd go back. I'd go back and edit right now. You might want to. But I think there's lots of different things, Um, Mm. and and, you know, like you say, like a big exit, yes, for sure. Um, And that's working alongside the principles of what is success in the startup world. And you know, Mm. to many, I think we could all agree that that's one of the outcomes that we could be measure as successful. Um, we talk about unicorn status and mm. to be able to name several women's health companies that have that. Yeah, that's good. But all of this is always obviously in flux because, you know, now we've seen this year, not that I'm going to stiff my nose up at, you know, a unicorn, but it's that's probably not the trend of where we're going. It's not going to be in unicorns. It's going to be in sustainable, um, you know, businesses that have longevity and will mm. you know manage the test of time and keep with a purpose as we say and pivot as much as they need and i i mean i do like the term pivot but i just feel like you you're just you're just moving it along you're kind of just nudging and jostling. jostling it into place and i think probably going all the way back to the nhs one of the downfalls has been that we didn't do enough jostling and if we did a little bit every day, then we'd be in a far better place than where we are now. Um, because now we look at everything and we think, God, it just needs a massive overhaul. So I think jostling is really important. Um, but I think where things would be is even if there's just, you don't have to have a massive exit. You don't have to be unicorn status. But, you know, people know of you. Like there's women out there who know of you and know what you're doing. There's people who've tried you. So obviously that comes in with traction, customer acquisition, mm-hmm. building out your brand. Because then you look around and you see the room and people go, oh, is it a bit like X? And you can say, no, we're not anything like them at all. Or, yeah, we're very similar to them. And that's fine. But what you've done, again, is this whole translation. You've found something relatable. And at the moment, women's health doesn't have any kind of foundations or big flagstones that you can hang on to. And even if you're nothing like the flagstone, that's at least a relatable starting place to say, have you heard of this? And if you think about so much what we do on the front line of doctors is like, we're going to change up your medications. You were on this and you know how this did this for you, but it gave you these side effects. We're going to give you something and you take it just like you were taking but it should have less of these side effects. Everything is building on some experience that happened before. I don't know if anyone's got this in your family. You're building, you're building, you're building. And at the moment, we've got so much innovation going on in women's health. What we haven't got is something that's building on, you know X brand, you know this type of product, you know when we were measuring this, we know when we asked you to do this. Now, it's a bit like that, but this is the benefit of it, or this is the added part of it. And that's that building, whether it be on the financial investment side, 
or whether it be on the kind of outcome side. That's what we need because then it will last. And, you know, it takes me back to my days when I was in Public Health England and I was um, leading the new, so we had a, we still do, a national cancer registration service and it collects data on all patients who have cancer. Um, And it collects that data in a very convoluted way, but essentially it comes through healthcare services. So it's not just your medical records, but also like if you had some blood tests at the lab, that all feeds into it, et cetera, et cetera. And we, way back in um, around 2016, 2015, 2016, Public Health England um, said, like, we need to set out an equivalent registration service, but for rare diseases, which obviously ties into cancer to some extent. There's some overlap. And we're going to look at congenital anomalies. We're going to look at rare diseases. That's feeding into genomics, personalised medicine, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I was leading that. And I was obviously coming from an obstetrics point of view where we did a lot of screening in pregnancy and where that goes on to there and paediatric care, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all going swimmingly well. But I realised that We needed something that cemented it in its place because it was new. And we needed to say that whereas we said, oh, the National Cancer Registration Service has been running for this many years and it's a staple and we, you know, we all know that. We actually need something so this feels like it. So I looked around and I was just like, you know what? Our whole, the beginning of this service really sat upon the national screening because we were doing typical screening for women who were pregnant. And therefore, I need to connect those dots and I need to bring those two services together. And the National Screening Committee and that service is decades old. It's well established. And so if I kind of jump onto that, then I will kind of stay floating because of that. And that's exactly what I did. I built a service which had to do a lot of things. But one of my number one priority was to build togetherness with the National Screening Committee and basically enable them to be able to do what they had to do through my service. And that's what I'm really kind of talking about, that there's something that you can build on something else. And that's really how we're going to move things forward. And we're going to keep the good pressure and money flowing into it, and also deliver out the other end from all of this innovation, we have to build and we have to become well-established as a market that then just continues and continues and continues because there is a time lag here. And we're not going to shift women's health tonight or next year or probably maybe not even in five years, but we need to see that we're moving closer to that goal. And so much of what we're doing at the moment, as I say, is the intention is there, the innovation is there, but sadly, everybody wants to start from scratch. So everyone jumps in with their one to two, five mil, whatever, and they say, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to build right from the beginning again. And I was like, you know what? Maybe look at connecting with someone else, collaborating, partnerships, network, build together. You can build your own things, but build together and use what's already out there. And we get some sort of movement forwards rather than just keep building out breadth. We need to build depth and move forwards. So, so, so interesting. It's not even just women's health that could be applicable for. We all, as you say, stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? And we'll do our best work there rather than um, 
trying to build everything from scratch and you know the platforms have done that very well i think shopify started you know that way they they built they built a um they built Shopify basically for a store and then thought, oh, we could just sell this platform that we just built. And all of a sudden, then everybody can just start a Shopify store straight out the gate. And then all of a sudden, you've got this dropshipping industry that starts off the back of it because the baseline platform is there. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting take and one that I've not heard actually before um, through the women's health lens. So yeah, I've definitely learned something there. With that in mind though, what then excites you about women's health now? You talk about the problem of breadth versus depth. Do you see any opportunities currently with that depth bit? Are there any areas that do excite you, either particular clinical areas or particular technologies, or indeed people that are marrying all of that stuff that you just talked about and actually finding depth and standing on the shoulders of some giants that they found? Is that happening in any particular places? Yeah, I think it's happening in a few places. It's very early stages. But I think that we, to some extent, as you say, yes, it can be rolled out across other areas in healthcare, sure. But what we're seeing in women's health right now is this whole like innovation in one area. We've also then got a real, you know, increase in awareness of women as patients, but also as customers. And they're like saying, look, this is actually what we want and this is what we're interested in. And we're getting more from a kind of government healthcare system place to say, look, this is what we need to do. So such as like the Women's Health Strategy in the UK. But I feel like these pieces are starting to come together and they're saying, look, maybe we we have kind of missed this this whole time. And maybe we really do need to like, whoops, we need to have a look at this again, or for the first time, probably. And I think it could just be that women's health, everything lines up. Because I see that this area generally wouldn't take that much to significantly improve. You know, I've worked a lot in cancer in the past, And I see how complex it is. And I'm not going to start to say, well, cancer is more complex than women's health or vice versa. But it's different complexities. And I think in women's health, we, because it's so untouched, because it's such a new territory that's really had money, research, women as the clients and customers, government interested in this all at once, there's a real potential that this could really change, like significantly change. And I'm excited by that. Now, which particular clinical area that will be, what kind of tech that will be, I don't know. I think that there's lots that I'm seeing. I think a lot is software based at the moment, but I think that that will possibly kind of start to be overtaken by other things because I don't think software alone is sufficient. Interesting. Because I think what's great with software is it reaches that woman, it's accessible, it's 24-7, it helps with a lot of chronic conditions that we see so much in women's health. But women's health is much bigger than just what we see from like reproductive gynae and looking at related conditions. And it's much more like what is healthcare in a woman versus what's healthcare in a man? And the healthcare we've got now is healthcare in a man. We just have it. We need the equivalent for in a woman. 
Um, but it's probably going to start with the gynae-related conditions and span out from there. But we get some successes. And then what we can see is they'll say, look, now we've really mastered this with this platform or with this hybrid approach or this new technology, we can spin our lens and look at, you know, dementia and cognitive decline in women and in relation to that. Um, I think where I'm super excited is looking at a woman across the kind of length of her life, thinking about it is unique to see that she goes from pre-puberty to puberty to, in some cases, pregnancy to a postnatal phase, then into a perimenopause phase, menopause, and then postmenopause. It's significant change all in one body. And I don't think, I'm like, wow, from a science point of view, that is super exciting. Um, and there's so much more to understand and uncover. And I'm excited by that. And I think we just need to work out how we're going to go about tackling this, like the partnerships we're going to form or, you know, the building blocks we're going to use or the amount of money that we need to put in to actually get something significant out there. But it's not as diverse as saying, look, I think I've got something that's really going to help with cancer, for example. Yeah. yeah. I think how you've just explained it, really highlights that opportunity right like the the varying yeah. stages of a woman's life and all of the physiology the very complex physiology that's going into that you know there's clearly physiological changes that are going to affect all sorts of different systems and processes going on in the human body but then also how health tech can pertain to that and personalize and all the rest of it it's in it there's so as you say so much to be uncovered and therefore so much opportunity within and i think that even helping people transition between those phases or specific devices that help during or things that can track through and like there's so there's so much right like it's reductive for me to even have a go yeah. at explaining all the opportunity there so i think that's I, I think that is incredibly important and good to know that 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 is an opportunity i'm sure there are entrepreneurs listening that, that are genuinely excited by that that have got ideas of like oh well in that case and then as you say find a giant to stand on the shoulders of don't start from scratch and then let's see if we can get some progress and land some of those big impactful things that come through definitely and if you are in another bit of healthcare and you've really sussed out something you know in a completely different bit, whether that's in old age, whether it's in children, whether that be in inflammation, whatever that be in, then please come over because, you know, it is a super, super community. And often people will remark about how um, friendly it is and how people do like to share. I think we are quite unique in that. Um, and we do want to collaborate because we are motivated to make this impact. Um, but, you know, if you're doing something amazing elsewhere in healthcare or even not in, you know, something completely different in the gaming sector, in travel industry or whatever, but there's something that can be applied. And I love that. I love that where you're like, well, we've done really well in this. Do you know, if could we do it somewhere else? It's like, yeah, hell yeah. Come and talk to me. That's what I'm interested in. Because I'm not interested in making something new just for the sake of making something new. I'm interested in doing something that actually does make a difference. 
I love that, Michelle. What a call to action that is to finish, by the way. Um, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure having you on. I, th- I think obviously the sector is a much better place of having you in it. I think going back to what we talked about right at the start, I think the the translation element and the understanding and the knowledge of all of those things that you've amassed in your career, I think make you an incredibly interesting person to talk to for any startup or company or entrepreneur or whatever that, that wants to learn more about this space or indeed get some let's call it proper advisor stuff uh, from someone who understands varying sectors and, and varying elements of how this whole sector plays together with others as well. So um, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. One final question from me, if people do want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing or Vera Health or any of those things, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Oh, well, thank you. It's been awesome to be here today and have this chat. I don't get this time much to do this, so this is great. And if you do have... Um, any questions or want to reach out to me, probably on my email, um, which we can put up here today. You can. We can stick that in the description of this episode too. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.